welcome to Pod Chip Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we explore the tale of two cities that straddle the US-Mexico border, Calexico and Mexicali. Mexicali and Calexico are in reality one city divided by a massive border fence. On the California side, Calexico is a sleepy town of 40,000 with farmland to the north, while Mexicali is a sprawling metropolis of 1.5 million. Both these communities share a great deal, including very serious air and water pollution challenges. This week, I meet up with three community activists, Ana Lorena Morena Garay, Esther Bejarano, and Jose Luis Olmedo Velez, who are all on the front lines of protecting community health on the border. I start my journey in Mexicali, which is a two-hour dusty drive from San Diego. Ana Lorena kindly offered to talk with me while we drive around the city of Mexicali. Mi nombre es Ana Lorena Moreno Garay y soy activista. Estamos en Mexicali, Baja California. My name is Ana Lorena Moreno Garay. I'm an activist and we are in Mexicali, Baja California. So when you look to the left, what are we seeing right there? It's the border. That's the border with California is Calexico, California. I mean, it's right there. Yeah, just a few steps from here. This is the capital of Baja California. And uh, it's, it's a binational town, I will say it, because we are so used to uh, the dynamic of being so close to the United States. So we, we tend to be bicultural, too. We understand what's happening in our neighboring country, and we also take care of our country, too. I came to Mexicali. I, I thought I was going to get the world's best tacos, but instead, what did we have? Oh, Chinese food, because that is our heritage. The founders of this city were Chinese. The first, the first uh, people that came here because of the railroad and the fields, the cotton fields, were the for Chinese people. And the second wave of migration here were Mexicans. It was pretty good fusion Chinese Mexican American food, I have to say. Tell us about gr what it was like growing up here. It's an agricultural town that, uh, in time, changed their vocation to maquiladoras and other economic model. I grew up here, went to school here, and it's kind of it's kind of boring, actually. <laughs> if you, there's not much to do. I moved to California, and then I went to Missouri and from Missouri to Arkansas. That's where I spent most of my time in the middle of U.S. So just to most people, they would think, like, this is a happening town compared to Arkansas. What was it like being a Mexican-American in Arkansas? Well, first of all, I am not a Mexican-American. I'm Mexican. I'm a resident. That's what allowed me to be in the United States and work in the United States and exercise my profession there. It was the, the time where the second wave of immigration arrived to to U.S. and there was a lot of uh, cultural problems because uh, the immigration, immigration went to some really small towns where they never had contact with people that didn't look like them. So what was it like? The problems were very serious, and it was the beginning of the um, racism, you know, the second era of racism in U.S. I became bilingual myself over there. I learned English with closed caption. Here, you know, like I said, you, you're constantly listening to 
TV and, and radio, like when you came in in my car, you know, you, you heard that I had NPR, for example. It is We are constantly hearing and, and learning, but I actually learned how to speak by closed caption. And I, I did it fast, and that allowed me to help others. So we've been driving along parallel to the border um, for like a mile. What do you think of when you see Calexico on the other side? There's not a lot of difference because Calexico is part of our day, day-to-day life here. It's a daily occurrence that you just cross the border and get some things over there because they're they're better uh, either or quality or price or whatever. It's, it's a normal dynamic for for us in a border town to see our sister city as part of us. There's a lot of Mexican citizens that now are American citizens and they live there. You know, they grew up, they uh, were born here and they emigrated and now they are the mayors or the directors or they're the decision-making people back there. So it's just a, like an extension and they're brother, we're brothers and sisters. It's, for me, is there's there's no difference. I mean, we the difference is that we had to wait uh, about an hour, sometimes two hours to, to get to see them and say hello you know, the, doing the, the line to cross to cross the border. But other than that is, you know, it's just their brothers and sisters. It's, for me, it's, that's, that's the way it is. So you're living in, in Arkansas. You've got this high-profile job, and then you move back to the town that you grew up in. What's it been like? Oh, my goodness. It was a cultural shock for me. All my experience, my, my work-related experience was in in US it was a shock it's very different you know in the United States it's more like one on one right here there's like a, a stratus or a caste system that in the work environment is very marked and right here is who you know who you are back in US is your work is one is going to determine how successful you are right here. When I moved back, I knew that I had to start over. There was a, a lot of barriers. I had to just be an entrepreneur, a professional entrepreneur. And that's not bad. I loved it. <laughs> We're just driving by the main federal plaza here, and there are these people that are protesting. Like, tell us, why, why are they protesting? The protest begins with the Pact of Mexico that uh, the president, Enrique Peña Nieto, that was part of his his main government plan. He was uh, he just finished being the president, right? So he had five years. Yes. It didn't go that well because there was not a lot of work done with the with the people. It was some uh, type of imposition that took place in. It was all about our resources, uh, the energy, our oil, just just about everything. So people didn't didn't like it. So he had this like social reform agenda where he was trying to make the country more capitalistic. Is that what he was trying to do? That's that's how it was understood, and here in Mexicali, we started responding to the to the national call of of protest, and the protest that took place here it was the biggest that has ever been, and since that day we have never stopped talking 
to our government, letting them know what we want. The water is, is one of the uh, issues that continues to be a problem. There's a um, foreign investment that comes to our city that makes water their part of their product. It's a brewery. It's a, um, it's a beer producer, a large corporation. They come here because um, they want. They have the the rights to sell Corona, the the beer in in U.S. market only. And California is the the biggest market for that beer. They told them that there's a lot of water, so they they started to give them all kinds of facilities for them to be here. The farmers were the ones that brought all that information to us, and we learned about those issues. And the more we started digging, the more we understood that the problem, it was not going to go away just by asking. We needed to be there constantly, and there's people that since then has been in front of the, the government plaza and also in front of the site where the, the brewery is being built. So what we want to do is to stop that, to stop that construction and for that brewery to, to leave because we don't have water. The aquifer is overextended. There's no recharge for the aquifer. We, we don't have rain here. It's one of the most arid areas in Mexico. So we do need to talk about those issues before we have this kind of businesses coming and taking something that we are not going to get back. They use a lot of water to make one liter of beer and nothing of that is going to stay here. Everything is going to U.S. We don't want them. We don't want them here. And they, instead of open up and talking to us and let us know what was their project about, they treated us really bad. So it, we have a plebiscite. We have lawsuits uh, that go from the, the brewery to us and from us citizens to them. We had been like two years and so into this, this fight to defend and to protect our, our natural resources. There is water, but we need to take care of it. And we need to make sure that we understand that water cannot become a product. We need it to live. We need it to live. It's, we need to change the way we think about water. So tell us a little bit about the air pollution here, because you can hardly see the sun today. There's no responsibility about our environment. We have to say it as it is. And even though the citizens are getting organized, there's a void in our government. And there's a lot of pollution that is being generated but by cars. There's a pollution that we get from the industries. And it's just really hard to breathe here. <laughs> So a lot of the cars I see like have California plates. How are those cars ending up in Mexicali? There's not just California plates. There's Idaho and there's Nebraska and Arizona and so and so on. There are people that lived in in US and come back here or they sell their cars and they stay here with the license plates. They call them actually the chocolate, chocolate cars. And it is a huge problem because 
they're not accounted for, and usually are older cars, and they're not in good shape, we need to take very serious this problem. So have you thought about the change in your life? What does it mean in 2019 to be a strong environmental advocate who's pushing political campaigns in Mexico? I have been always been political. I think that the first campaign that I actually participated, I was seven years old when I uh, memorized the jingle of a presidential uh, campaign. So I have been always, since I have memory, been involved. And for me, it's all about the greater good. It's, there's no personal interest on this besides the fact that I have a conscience and we cannot be standing in the line just waiting for somebody else to do something. If I see that there's a problem, that means that part of the solution is within me and I cannot just stay quiet or stay, you know, I, I have to do something. And when it comes to the environment here in, in Mexicali, it's just all over, you know, it's, it's all over because it has been neglected. Whether it is trash, whether it is water, quality of air. In Mexico, we, we don't understand what is uh, drinking water, you know. We have to pay for that. And it's the responsibility of the government to give us drinking water. So it's, it's just the, the, the essentials, the, the basic elements of sustaining life is based on our environment and we're not taking care of it. So I can't stand just waiting for somebody else to do something. I always start just by reading the issues and under, trying to understand them and then I go to the law and I'm not a, a lawyer, you know, and, and I try to understand the best I can and, and then I go to experts and it is a lot of work. You know, it is a lot of work that my mom or my family said, so what are you doing? Is, is that work? Said, yeah, it is work, but it's, you know, I'm not getting paid for. It, that's, that's the life of, of an activist. There's a lot at stake here. You know, we're talking about life, quality of life. So that's, that's how it feels. It feels like a responsibility. And how does the political establishment and business, how are they reacting to you? <laughs> I do feel threatened, I feel persecuted, I feel observed. Just two weeks ago there was a reporter that lost his, his life. It, it's very real. Sometimes I get messages that, don't say that. I'm sorry if my voice breaks, but it's, it's what I live, what I live on a daily basis with my family too, you know, that something can happen to us. You know, when we are outside, my mom is at home, you know, that somebody come in and just pushes the door and does something to, to our mom, you know. But I, am not, I would not be causing that. But there's people that don't like it. And I have to separate that very consciously because if not, I will yield to fear. And I, I'm, I'm willing to die for this. <laughs> I'm willing to die for this. I'm I'm not I'm not staying quiet. I'm not staying quiet. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very real, the oppression. It is very real. And I have seen it in some other activists that had been more um 
in the front. And I advise a lot of the activists. And I do a lot of that work that is not that much in the front right now here in Mexico. There is even um, a list of activists here that the government gave to United States homeland security so they wouldn't be able to cross the border. And that is repression. So I live it on, on a daily basis. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Next up, I meet with Esther Bejarano, who directs the health programs for Committee Civico de Valle, a nonprofit that was founded in 1987 in Imperial County, California, to improve the lives of disadvantaged communities through a broad range of approaches, including civic education, outreach, research, citizen science, and crowdsourcing. Esther spent the last decade working on asthma issues. We walk through Mexicali en route to the border crossing. I start by asking Esther to share a little of her history. I was born in, in Mexicali, about maybe 30 miles from here to the east, and I crossed the border illegally <laughs> um, when I was about seven years old. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then where did you... But I'm a U.S. citizen now. <laughs> Naturalized, okay? <laughs> Excellent. You know, before the fence was open, there was no fence. So my mother used to go across to buy groceries. My father was a farm worker. And so we came to buy groceries and we just walked across and we came back with groceries. And then one day you decided to stay. And one day they saw the Border Patrol saw us and I said, get out, you know, you're, you shouldn't be doing this on this. So they talked to us and my mom says, you know what, let's just move to the U.S. Your dad's going over there every day. Um, you know, we hardly see him. He's always in Salinas. So you've been living on the U.S. side of the border and now you're working on, on uh, asthma. I'm working on asthma, I'm I'm working on uh, empowering our community. Uh, My father, my uncles, my family, you know, this is uh, the people who we live with, the people who we care about. Um, And so that is what I do every day. I wake up and I do what I love to do. So a lot of people come from the U.S. to buy asthma medication here in Mexicali. So I can come to this pharmacy here on your left. I can go in there and ask for a albuterol, which is a quick relief medication. In the U.S., it costs about maybe $70 to $200. And I can purchase it for less than $10 right now. And that's like an inhaler? It's an inhaler that I, it will help me um, breathe. So if I'm having an asthma attack or I'm coughing or I'm wheezing and having chest tightness, I can come in here and they gave me the inhaler. Two of my children have asthma. Okay, and so if you came over here, many people simply just can't afford to get the inhaler in the U.S. at $200. Yes. Some of these pharmacies have doctors in them. So they, you know, you talk to the doctor, you tell them whatever symptom you have, and you really avoid that, you know, going to the doctor and spending money where, as we know, our community does not, you know, we have a lot of resources and and, you know, we were just talking about a farm worker. They make about $50 a day. They wake up at, at 1 o'clock in the morning, start working at 4 or 5. They get off work at 5 in the afternoon, maybe take home $50, $60 a day. And they don't want to go and pay uh, consulta to, to the U.S. or, or their uh, employer is sending them to Mexico because that's where the, medic, the, the doctor is at. So you have to bring your child across the border. So wait, so there's an employer, like an, a farm worker would be employed and they'd say, you have to go to Mexico. Yes, so... You have to go, so so they'd say to me, Jared, you you need to go to Mexico to get your health care. Yes, so uh, we have a lot of um, 
employers in the in Imperial County and the United States that send you to Mexico to receive their medication. So when when you get the inhaler, you're then going to school and they have an asthma attack. What happens? I was talking to a principal in one of the schools closest to Salton Sea. She says, Esther, we have a huge problem. You know, I have children that have uh, their doctors in Mexico and they bring medication from Mexico and they're huffing in front of me and they're, you know, I cannot administer that medication. So they, they're told to go to Mexico to get the, the inhalers. They go get the inhalers, but then they can't use it in the school. Why? Because it is policy is not FDA approved and you can't, the school doesn't want to be liable. They rather, you know, call the 911, but we know that uh, when you have asthma, you need the medication with you at all times. We, uh, we had a mother, I spoke to a mom that works in uh, El Centro. She sent me an email. She says, I work for the Imperial County Office of Education. I'm a teacher. I took my child to Mexicali because that's where my employer sent me to, to go to the doctor. She's a government employee. And I was so upset that the nurse would not take the medication. And then I explained to her, it is not the nurse's fault. That is what she is instructed to do. This is a policy that happens countywide. And this problem is also in San Diego. It's crazy. But my brother has a friend who just passed three months ago because he wasn't taking his medication. So there are people dying in the county due to asthma. Is it something that completely can be avoidable? Esther walks me back through U.S. Customs into Calexico, where I meet up with Jose Luis Olmedo Velez, who is the director of Committee Civico de Valle. Luis is one of the leading advocates for social and environmental justice along the U.S.-Mexico border. Luis, it sounds like you had a very binational childhood. I was born in Mexicali, and at age seven, I began to travel to the U.S. side. I would travel with my dad. He was a farm worker, and he would work in Imperial. In the summer months, then he would follow the corrida, uh, follow the harvest season north. So I've traveled uh, all throughout California. So 30 years ago, your dad formed an organization? Uh, my dad, uh, his involvement in that farm worker movement at the local level, and, uh, you know, he credits uh, his experience and the leadership skills that were developed. I think it was pretty clear that the farm worker community, or uh, also refers to the migrant community, needed a voice. And his response was they needed to have an organization. And in order to have a voice, you need to have a vote. So one of the first things that uh, my dad embarked on was uh, to develop this this group, which they called Comité Civico al Valle in 1989. And, and at what point did it become an organization focused on environmental issues? So we first addressed it through health and through community health workers, uh, also known as promotoras. As the promotoras uh, were out there in the, in the community, were interacting with the community, they started realizing, well, we can push paper you know, for, for decades upon decades and, and, and really not make a big dent. So they realized that in order to be able to solve a lot of the health issues that, that the farm worker population were experiencing, they needed to remove the trigger. And a lot of these were remove the pesticides, remove the toxics, remove the pollution. So many people, when they think of California, they think of these beaches or Silicon Valley or the Golden Gate Bridge. like. Describe a little bit where we are, where we're driving right now, and like 
This is this is a California that's been forgotten. The way that that California looks at us is very. It's a rural agricultural area. We've never seen this area in anything other than rural because that's what we were trained to communicate as. And our true representation is we're a hybrid between a rural and a metropolitan area because just to the south is a metropolitan area, and we're part of that metropolitan area. And But we're also rural because once you cross the border and you travel a few miles, then you see the rural areas of, of this uh, Salton Sea Air Basin. I mean, we've just done that, and it's kind of incredible. I mean, literally 10 minutes ago, you and I were walking through the border, and on the other side is a city of one and a half, two million. And now, like, just describe what we see around us. Once you cross the border, you don't have the density in traffic. Around us, you know, we have fields, we have all types of crops. You know, there's a lot of grass crops. Uh, you know, there's certain areas in the valley that are also very productive when it comes to, to vegetable uh, growing. Uh, that is sort of the economic engine. You know, this valley was founded on agriculture and because of the diversion of the Colorado River, it's become a very fertile uh, land and and it's, it's one of the major job creators. And the other thing to note is that as we're crossing the border, you know, it's also evident that law enforcement is also one of the major uh, job creators out here because of the prisons that we have. We have a couple of prisons and we have probably every law enforcement you can think of. So talking of law enforcement, um, when we were right next to the border fence, you were pointing out the razor wire that had just recently been installed. The razor wire is being uh, ripped off the fence and then being sold to the neighboring communities to protect those homes. It's it's unnecessary. I mean, it really gives a feel of a fascist, communist type of government. I mean, I've never seen that. We're a very peaceful community, and we're uh, interconnected with Mexico. We have family on both sides, and I don't believe that it solves anything other than then just create local tensions and 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 create local local pressures. That's not what we're about in this community. You came up with a really ingenious and cool way of thinking about the role that communities can play in enforcement. The more we understood enforcement, the more we understood policy, the more we understood how to develop programs, well, we're able to utilize these uh, experiences and these tools to be a partner with government who's in the best position than the community to inform the whole process. How do we get there? What are the local strategies? So if you're if you're a community member and you live next to a facility and it's polluting the watershed, what would you do? You can text something, a report in, you can call it in, uh, you can utilize a mobile app, you can use a computer or desktop, uh, or you can go to the monthly task force. And that's important because we have consistency. Every third Thursday of the month, we meet at the local department of toxics. And when we meet there, then people can come in and submit their reports at that time and we'll do it for them. Or they'll call our office. We're able to then report back. So government can then come back and report back what happened with that. Not every incident that gets submitted is a violation or a crime. A lot of times there's a need for information so that people understand what what is truly a crime, uh, what is not. And then in some cases, they're able to learn more about their own community. We've also found that sometimes there's a need for policy, and that's also important, that a lot of times there's new things that hadn't been thought about, and there's a need to, to uh, push for new policy to be able 
to address some, some environmental pollution issues. Tell us about the air quality problem in Imperial and then kind of how, how you found solutions. Some of the first steps that we took is we, we knew we wanted more data. We didn't trust the governmental monitors. That was the feeling at that time. We need community monitors. We wanted to see that if there was something happening, fence line to a neighborhood, we wanted to see it in the monitor. But if the monitor is 5, 10, 15 miles away, then clearly that built lack of trust because people weren't able to tell the story through the monitors. But at that point, it wasn't real science yet. So when this uh, National Institutes of Health opportunity came by, we were able to recruit scientists and researchers, monitoring experts to create what we now call Ivan Air. And currently we have 40 air monitors that we operate. And I can tell you that in the past, we didn't know this language, but you know now we've been able to better understand uh, you know, when it comes to regulatory methodologies, siting methodologies, uh, scientific methodologies, and how to take a low-cost sensor and be able to then, you know, add these algorithms to and calibrations. You know, all these words that are associated to good scientific citizen science. So what is the data showing us about the air quality here? Uh, right today, I mean, there's mountains around us, but we can't see anything. There's a combination of uh, particles coming from the north, Salton Sea, from the desert, you know, from uh, the Los Angeles Air Basin. There's pollution coming from Mexico. And so what happens is it's, you know, we're like in a bowl, so we're surrounded by dust. The mountains are an average of uh, 40 miles on every direction. We can't see them because the further we look, the, the more dense the pollution is. And so it's, it's unfortunate because this is a valley. It's, it's got beautiful mountains all around us. This data is used to help schools, for instance, with a flag program so that they know when their kids should be staying inside, um, especially those kids that are sensitive to asthma. There's a lot of uses for the data. Uh, we work with the local high schools, and the high school utilizes it for part of their programs. And some of these are like state-mandated programs, like environmental literacy or, or, or civic uh, literacy. They actually utilize that opportunity to engage the students on better understanding the data, the science, then do something about the pollution. It's creating a much greater awareness where now everybody's sort of policing the air quality. It's no different than a rainy day schedule. But for some reason, we feel that it's more dangerous to be out in the rain than it is to be out in, in poor air quality. So this morning, we, you and I went to visit Veronica, who lives out on a farm in a rural part of the county. Her water comes from the irrigation ditch. Everybody having access to water is important. It's important for agriculture. It's, imper it's important for human consumption. And having clean water is, is, is a human right and having access to water is a human right. It's a very contentious issue uh, because the majority of the water is, is used for agriculture. It's, it's an economic engine. We as an organization, we care about public health. We care about people having access to clean water. Nobody should be having to drink unhealthy water. And it's very expensive to have bottled water. Bottled water is a luxury. And a lot of the people who live on the countryside home, many of them are farm workers, but it's hard. There's a lot of pushback on our organization. I mean, some political uh, candidates uh, back in, in uh, October 2018 even were paying for, 
you know, paid publicity calling us environmental terrorists. The issues of public health and, and in the environment and, and you know, food production, they, they, they shouldn't be a, uh, an opportunity for a political platform. Politics shouldn't be divisive in that way. What they should do is, is really facilitate conversations between community and industry so that everybody is able to share the resource and everybody has what they need, you know, whether it's to grow crops, to create jobs, but also to drink. I mean, because, I mean, everybody needs water. Everybody needs clean water. And, and it's a resource just like air. We all need it. A huge thank you to Ana Lorena Moreno Garay, Esther Bejarano, and Jose Luis Olmedo Velez for their incredible commitment to fighting for environmental justice along the US Mexico border. As I was thinking about the tale of Calexico and Mexicale, the words of Charles Dickens came to mind. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. In the next episode of Podship Earth, I talk with heroes of the planet, winners of the Goldman Environmental Prize, which recognizes those who are overcoming enormous odds in battling polluters. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have a great Earth Day week. Mexicali rose, stop crying.